0: I really think that the most important moment of the 20th century is the end of the colonial empire. Much more important than any other thing. Today, it seems normal, I mean, but I'm not sure it would have been disappeared so easily without the Soviet Revolution. I mean as a child, I mean I I remember the bombing of neighborhood and we were frightened by the war, etc. But what was very clear for me and I was eight years old, that we were in full solidarity with Nasser against the French and the British.
1: You're listening to Myself with Others, a podcast about the life of ideas on and off the page. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and my guest today is the Paris-based journalist Alain Grèche. Alain, who grew up in Cairo, is the director of Orient 21, an online journal of Middle East Affairs and the former editor of Le Monde Diplomatique. Alain, whom I've known for more than a decade, is not simply a journalist. He's a committed writer an old-fashioned man of the left whose work grows out of a deep commitment to the principles of emancipation, self-determination, and anti-imperialism. In his fidelity to these ideals, he's carried on the work of the activist and underground militant Henri Curiel, an Egyptian Jewish leftist whom Alain discovered was his biological father only in his late 20s, a few years before Curiel was assassinated in his Paris apartment the last time that I saw Alain in Paris he gave an eloquent speech at the inauguration of a commemorative plaque in honor of Henri Curiel whose murder by a shadowy group that called itself Operation Delta remains a cold case in France Alain thanks for joining me on myself with others
0: Thank you Adam.
1: Alain you were born in 1948 a pivotal year in the history of the Middle East, the year of the founding of the state of Israel, the year of the first Arab-Israeli war, the year of the Nakba, the dispossession of Palestinians from their land. At the time, you were in Cairo. Four years later, the free officers, led by Gamal Abdel Nasser, would come to power, in no small part thanks to the Arab defeat in Palestine. Tell me what it was like for you growing up in Cairo in those years.
0: Of course, I was born in Egypt in 1948 at the moment where Just before Egypt changed completely from a kind of cosmopolitan country, or at least Cairo and Alexandria were cosmopolitan, it was given back, I think, to the Egyptian people. And I want to say one thing very important for me. I have no nostalgia. I read many books about people saying, oh, how it was lovely when Egypt in the 40s and all these communities, they were speaking French and... Two or three days ago, I, I noticed a tweet by an Egyptian girl saying, Oh, here is a photo of Umm Kalthoum attending a football game in 1948. Look at the elegance of the crowds. The crowd was a bunch of <laughs> pasha and rich people. And I feel many times when people speak about their nostalgia about the old Egypt, they don't imagine that the old Egypt was zero zero point one point percent of the population and on this i was really uh, very clear from my child that i was a privilege it was nice to live i was going in private club and i have a nunu and i was going to the french lycée etc etc
1: was the french lycée that you went to the school for french-speaking jews the alliance israelite
0: No, no. It was a French public uh, lycée of Babelouk. Till 1956, it was the French government who ran it after it was nationalized. But it was a privilege. But perhaps with the difference with other people who grew up at the same age, I was very clear that I was a privilege.
1: Alain, I take your point that the memory or the invention of memory about cosmopolitan Cairo in the 1940s before the overthrow of the monarchy is coded in a nostalgia that's actually very distorting of Mm. Egyptian Mm. history and of the vast inequality and misery suffered by the masses of Egyptians. Uh, But could you talk a bit more about what your life was like uh, as a child? Uh, Which community did you belong
0: to? First, I had an Egyptian passport contrary to many people, many Jews uh, which have Italian, etc. My passport was Egyptian. So my father, who brought me up, I mean, who's not my biological father, but who is in some way my father, was a a Coptic Catholic. (laughs) It's very strange. I mean, there were very few Catholics, I mean, the Coptic are Orthodox, and he was a minority in the minority. And one of the jokes coming in our family, I never checked if it was true, that we were made Catholic by a decree from the Khedive, who wanted diplomatic relations with the Vatican. There were not enough Catholics, so the family, Grace, were made Catholic, which, which says something about what is identity. So, my father was Coptic Catholic, my mother was Jew. She was born in Switzerland from parents who were My grandmother was from St. Petersburg and my grandfather was from Lithuania, Vilnius. And she came in Egypt at the age of 10 when my my grandfather died when my mother was born from the uh, Spanish fluenza in 1918. Her stepfather and my grandmother came to Egypt in 1928. Also, it's amusing that the stepfather of My mother was a committed scientist. He wanted to go to Palestine, but he was a pharmacist. He didn't find a pharmacy, and somebody told him there is a pharmacy in Cairo and he came in Cairo. So it was a very mixed milieu, and even if we had through my Catholic father an Egyptian passport, the language we spoke French. and all the people I knew, their main language was French. In this sense, I have an ambiguous feeling, not towards Egypt, but toward my Egyptian identity. I never felt myself as an Egyptian. When you don't speak the language as a mother tongue, and you are considered in, in Egypt, you say Khawaga.
1: Khawaga, foreigner. So very early on, you felt some sense of separation from other people. Egyptians, which I think was also the case with the uh, journalist and diplomat Eric Rouleau, an Egyptian Jew who also uh, grew up in Cairo a bit earlier than you.
0: Yes, it was the case. But the difference with a part of the foreigners that at the same time, and this is linked with the period I grew up, I felt much solidarity with the Egyptian people. And as you said, I uh, my political memory is... 1956, Suez affair, and nationalization of the Suez Canal, the attack. I mean, as a child, I mean, I I remember the bombing of neighborhood and we were frightened by the war, etc. But what was very clear for me, and I was eight years old, that we were in full solidarity with Nasser against the French and the British.
1: It's It's really interesting to me, Alain, that 1956 becomes the crucible of your political consciousness when you're eight years old. This is, of course, the uh, Suez War, as it's known in France and Britain and Israel. But in Egypt, it was known as uh, the tripartite aggression. And So it's my sense that very early on, even if you did not feel quite Egyptian because your mother tongue was French, nevertheless, your understanding of politics was very much shaped by the anti-imperialism of that period and your sense of belonging to a country that was not a part of the West.
0: Yes. I mean, I was, we can say, in the mood of the country in general, which was very, very anti-imperialist. And uh, there was the idea that Egypt was getting independent again, that we were going to build an independent country, prosperity, etc., with relation with the Soviet Union. I, I will come back to, to this. So there was really something of a general mood. But Of course, I mean, other young people like me were not at all with Nasser. And I think an important part of my political uh, understanding was my mother. She grew up in Egypt and she has very difficult relations with her stepfather. And as soon as she was, uh, I think, 18, she flew from her house in Cairo and she... I don't know in which circumstances she began to know the Jewish communist Henry and his wife and many people, and she was very involved in this. And I want to say something about when you read about the communist movement in this period, you read about the history of men. Henri Curiel, Hillel Schwartz. I mean, they were debating ideology, etc. Et
1: but there were, of course, many women who were involved in the movement.
0: The women were involved, but they are not known because they were doing the everyday work. So my mother was very committed to come in, in some way, but in some way, not in an ideological sense. It was much more concrete. And she was feeling what and justice was, and she felt sympathy with, for the Egyptian people, even if she didn't speak Arabic. She learned Arabic in Egypt. So I think she brought us with this progressive idea. The fact that she was from Russian origin, she was speaking Russian, and this was also important for her. We read books from—I mean, translation, of course, of books from Tolstoy, etc. But also the Soviet literature. I mean, one of the books which. I mean, make me communist in some way was, I imagine you have heard about it, uh, how the steel was tampered, El Asifu by Nikolai Ostrovsky, which is a Stalinist, which is the story of the October Revolution seen with... Very, I mean, optimist way, but which was really, I mean... With
1: rose-tinted glasses.
0: Yes, with rose-tinted glasses. So it
1: was really through your mother's influence that you became aware of poverty in Egypt and also of the ideals of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. You were a communist as a young man, almost still as as a boy, but you were a communist in a developing society of what used to be called uh, the Third World, where the major question was not so much the class struggle um, as it might have been in France, but the, the national struggle, the struggle for uh, national independence. Um, and in that regard, your, your communism, whether you knew it or not, was strikingly similar to the communism of the man you later learned was your biological father, Henri Curiel. He had been expelled from Egypt by the monarchy in 1950, two years after you were born. As far as I know, he never returned to Egypt, but he maintained a very close relationship to the country. So before we get to France, Alain, I wanted to know, what did you know of Henri Curiel before you arrived in Paris? I realize he was a family friend, but did you know about him at the time?
0: I met him once in 1958.
1: On a trip to France? Uh, No,
0: it was a trip to Europe at this time. I think there was no diplomatic relation between France and Egypt in '58, and I don't know why. We went to Europe with my father, my mother, and my brother. We visited Italy. We visited Germany. We went to the world uh, in Brussels. Uh, the World's Fair. The World's Fair in 1958. And also, my parents left us in a home in Switzerland for two weeks. And I remember that we met Henry, but I didn't know who who he was. I met him perhaps one hour. But I knew of him because he was also the guy who was sending us books. He was making a subscription, for example, for Vaillant. Vaillant was a newspaper, not of the Communist Party, but near the Communist Party in France, but with comics, etc. We were receiving it in uh, in Cairo, and we knew that he was the guy who was sending us. And then I met him first when I came to Paris, but he was still in prison. Because the Algeria we arrived in. in
1: uh... Right, because Henri Curiel was imprisoned towards the end of the Algerian war because of his involvement with the Porteur de Valise, the baggage carriers, a network of people who were aiding the Algerian rebels in Europe. He'd become the, the leader of the uh, Porteur de Valise after Francis Chanson. And I think that your father was released only after. Uh, the Evian Accords in 1962.
0: Yes, I arrived in April 1962, and he was released in uh, July 62. But also something about not the question of identity. And when we, we left Egypt, it was in 1962. And in, at this moment, there was a crisis between France and Egypt. There was a kind of spy in it and there was no diplomatic relation. So we were not able to come to France because... We had a, a, an Egyptian passport. So my father, who was a very famous bridge player and who has very good relation with Lebanon, went to Lebanon and he bought a Lebanese passport. So we entered France with a Lebanese passport. We changed our name because our original name was not Gresh, it was Gress. So
1: you had a new name.
0: And so we came here with, so I have
1: three nationality. You were Jewish thanks to your mother. You were Catholic, thanks to your father. Yes. And you were Lebanese, thanks yes. to your father's bridge playing. Yes. And a communist, a youth communist. You were juggling a lot of identities by the time you came to France.
0: Yes, and I was an atheist. I mean, uh, since uh, at uh, 12 or 13...
1: It seems rather significant to me that you arrived in France in 1962 after the end of French rule in Algeria, with France still reeling from the end of the war and the loss of its most precious colony... Do you have memories of the end of the Algerian War and the mood in the country when you arrived?
0: Look, for two years, my, we we left Egypt, but my mother wasn't able for six months to leave Egypt. The authority refused her an exit visa. It was very little complicated. So we were sent to a pensioner, a, a, a lycée in France, but we were sleeping there. You were in a boarding school. Yes, in a boarding school. And I was there for two years. During this period, it was a period when the Pied Noir, I mean, the French who were expelled or left Algeria.
1: And when they were, quote unquote, repatriated to France, a country that most of them didn't even know.
0: And so many of my friends were from Algeria and French, all of them were not extreme right, you can't say this, but were with the Organisation Armée Secrète, L'OAS, which was people fighting against the independence of Algeria. Right. But in some way, it's very strange. It was with them which I made some friendship because, I mean, for me, France was really a shock from the Egyptian society, which was in some way open. People were going from one house to another. We were going to France without much formality. I discovered a a society i wasn't able really to understand before sometimes and the people who has the same view of me on a social uh, view was the people from Noir, from algeria
1: from algeria right so whatever your political differences were on french rule in algeria and the question of colonialism they came from a similar milieu in a way
0: yeah yes yes Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: seems odd to discuss your work in relation to that of your biological father's since you didn't grow up knowing him and he never acknowledged paternity so far as i know but at the same time the link seems unavoidable because your father Henri Curiel was this remarkable figure in the history of the post-war left he was a founder of the egyptian and sudanese communist parties a supporter of the 1952 revolution in egypt although of course he was exiled from the country. Then he becomes this key player in these networks that aid the Algerian rebels, the FLN against French rule. And then after that, he creates his own organization, Solidarity, which helped anti-colonial, anti-imperialist and leftist movements in South Africa, Portugal, Chile and other countries. He's murdered in 1978, probably by French intelligence, maybe with the help of South Africans. You weren't raised by him. And as you've said, you only knew him vaguely growing up as a kind of family friend, but you resemble him physically and in your work as a communist activist and then later as a left-wing journalist, you've been very much your father's son, writing on Palestine, on Egypt, on the oppressed and the global south. So I'd love to know what kind of relationship did you develop with Henri Curiel once you got to France and how was it that you became aware that he in fact was your father?
0: Since at least I was 14 years old, I began to see him regularly and more and more. And he was, for me, a kind of ideal father. I considered him as an ideal father because he was all what I dreamed of. And he played an important role in my political formations. Both sides of my political formation, one as a communist Stalinist, to be very frank, and I assume it, I I was this, but also open to the third world. And when I entered the Communist Party in France, which was a a big, at this moment, an important party, I was very happy. But (laughs) the most I I became old in France, in the Communist Party, and then after also in the left, etc., I felt more and more that my experience in Egypt was something which made me special if we compare it to my friends, we were all communists, but we didn't see the world in the same way. Even if we were, I mean, young and we were sta- very Stalinist. I mean,
1: because um, you're from a country that had been colonized.
0: No, no, of course, of course. I mean, I, I can understand, but more I uh, became old, I felt it strongly, more strongly that there was a difference between me and even my best friend, who were struggling with me in the Communist Student League, the Communist Party, etc., etc. And this, of course, is at the same time the result of my childhood in Egypt and the result of Henry, who was, as you know, a real Stalinist in the way he saw the world. And in some way, he was so open to the third world, he was wanting to understand what was happening, ready to to help movement which had nothing to do with communism, etc., etc.
1: Alain, I think it's important for us to underline here what really distinguished your father in the communist movement of that period, which was his insistence on the centrality of the national or colonial question. He was someone who believed that the Egyptian Communist Party, which had been founded mostly by uh, Jews, had to be Arabized. He Uh, was someone who believed that nationalism was the burning question in a colonial context prior to the class struggle. And in that sense, strangely enough, he was at one and the same time a total Stalinist and a kind of dissident within the party.
0: And as you know, he was rejected by the French Communist Party, mainly because in 1952, he was in France when Nasser took power and he was in favor of supporting Nasser. And this was considered anathema by the French Communist Party. And even they made some very nasty attacks personally against him, which has consequences. Because in 1952, when this attacks were made, he was still an important leader of, in exile of the Egyptian Communist Party. But when the French Communist Party, which was a grand party, a great party, took position against him, his friends expelled him. I mean, put him in a, a corner. And it was very difficult for him.
1: There was also his involvement in the Algerian struggle.
0: This was after, yes, yes. uh, That
1: was after. Yeah. But it's another example of how he broke away from the mainstream communist movement to support nationalists. Yes. So you became very close to him, and he became a mentor figure to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had political discussion. I think also my interest for Lenin, which was much stronger than Marx, came from him. I'm not saying that I have read the 45 <laughs> books of Lenin work, but quite a lot of it. And till now, I mean, I really think that the Bolshevik Revolution, and mainly due to uh, Lenin, were able to understand the struggle of the third world. You mentioned uh, event we made in Paris when there was this commemorative plague about the place where he was uh, killed. And I made this speech saying that I really think that the most important moment of the 20th century is the end of the colonial empire, much more important than any other thing. Today, it seems normal. I mean, but I'm not sure it would have been disappeared so easily without the Soviet revolution and without the fact that for Lenin, the question of colonialism was a central question.
1: Right, which I think is a very third world perspective on the impact of Marxism in the modern world in the 20th century. But Alain, I remember your once telling me that you'd been at a conference, I think it was in Prague, sometime in the mid-70s. You'd returned to Paris, and a friend of yours mentioned that he'd just seen your father. And you knew it couldn't have been the father who raised you. It wasn't Mr. Gresh or Mr. Gress. You knew that he was referring to Henri Curiel. And at that point, you had an epiphany. You realized, yes, that's my father.
0: Yes, yes. At this time, I was working uh, as a coordinating secretary of the World Festival of Youth in Cuba. So for two years, from 1976 to 1978, I worked a part in Budapest and a part in Cuba for preparing this uh, festival. And Henry was very proud that I was doing this. with. I mean, in this festival, there were, of course, the communist movement, but there was also all the liberation, national liberation movement, etc., etc. When I was coming to Paris, I was living in the house of some friends and Henry came to see me and I was not here. And as you said, uh, my friend told me your father came and my father, Mr. Gesh, couldn't know that I was even in Paris. I think I knew it from a long time. You
1: had some sense of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, some sense. And as you know, it was an open secret. I, I think I was the only one who didn't know it <laughs> because as you say, the physical resemblance was, I mean, uh, really striking. But unfortunately, I I met him, but as I said, I was living in in Budapest and in uh, Cuba. And I think between the moment I had the information and the moment he was killed, I saw him three times.
1: first heard about his killing.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I was in Paris. At this time, I was living in Cuba. And I was in Paris with a Cuban delegation. And I didn't knew it before the morning of the 5th of May. And I remember, it, of course, very well. And really, of course, it's, I didn't understand what they were saying. They told me they came at his house. And I said, they came at his house? Who, is, who came and what, what are you talking about? And then after, of course, I knew it. It was a difficult moment in some way, in many ways, of course, but the fact that I wasn't able to develop uh, a different kind of relation with him after the fact that I... Knew that he was your father. Knew that he was your father. So this was... uh,
1: That must have been quite difficult. Yeah. Now, Henri Curiel, uh, towards the end of his life, was deeply involved in organizing talks between left-leaning Israelis and members of Fatah, the uh, most powerful faction in the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. Your father was somewhat aloof, in fact, critical of the more radical currents uh, in the PLO, groups that had been uh, organizing these uh, spectacular attacks and hijackings and so forth. At the same time, you were working on a dissertation about the PLO And if I'm not mistaken, you were in contact with members of the more radical currents in the Palestinian movement, the Palestinian left, the Palestinian uh, revolution, not the kind of people your dad was talking to. Am I right about
0: that? It was my PhD. I made a PhD which was uh, published in English as a book, PLO, The Struggle Within, about the idea of the Palestinian state among the Palestinians. For this dissertation, I met uh, the people from Fatah, I met uh, people from Popular Front, from Democratic Front, uh, from the Communist Party, uh, etc., etc. I was following, I mean, what Henry was doing, but I I was not following in the detail, especially the fact that in 76, 78, when this conversation was important, uh, I was not in... uh,
1: You were not there. I guess what I'm wondering, Alam, is this, I mean, you wrote an article recently about the years in which the Palestinian liberation movement captured the dreams of a younger generation and the movements that excited people on the radical left in the West were groups like the PFLP, the DFLP and, and so on, these Marxist Palestinian groups. And I wondered, were you swept up in that mood as well as a young man?
0: No, in the 70s, I was a member of the Young Communist League We were supporting the idea of the fact that Israel was a fact and it was not going to finish, but we were among the people who said we must support the Palestinians. And I remember September, Black September, we were very uh, involved. In the beginning, the Communist Party was very reticent to this old gauchist, I mean, ultra-left, because it was also after 1968 and the difficult relation between the French Communist Party and the ultra-left. And a part of the Palestinian movement, especially in France, were linked with the Mao.
1: Was affiliated with the Maoists, sure.
0: But, uh, you know, sometimes it's not so clear that uh, we were with these people or, or not.
1: I mean, it sounds like your view was much closer to that of your father and of a figure like uh, Maxime Rodincon. You saw Israel as a fact. It exists. It's not going to be wiped out. But the, the Palestinians deserve freedom, justice and sovereignty as well.
0: Yes, but perhaps what I underestimate, think today is what makes Zionism different from other national liberation from other forms of colonialism. I mean, I, you know, in the beginning, I have supported the Oslo Agreement. Right, and many of my friends didn't. Not because I thought it was good, but I thought it could bring a kind of Palestinian state after a Palestinian state with Israel, perhaps the things in the region will change, not only between Israel and Palestine, but in the Arab world, and create new conditions to something else. So in this period, I was really realistic. Today, in some way, I am realistic. I don't think there is any possibility of a Palestinian state today. But I am not asking, and I, I don't agree with people who say we must dissolve the Palestinian authority. Or I think this also is also something Henry taught me. It's the responsibility of the Palestinians. We are in support of them, and we are not here to tell them you have to do— To
1: tell them what to do.
0: What to do. So today, I really think that there is no solution for the next generation. And the only struggle worth it is the struggle for equality between the people who live on the, on the land of Palestine.
1: Regardless of whether they're Palestinians in the occupied territories or Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem, it's about rights and equality.
0: Yeah, and uh, Jews. And Jews, of course. I mean, it's also, and this is perhaps a difference I can have with some people who support the one-state solution. I don't think any solution is possible without a break in the Israeli society without a part of the Israeli society taking part in this struggle. When I was asked about the errors of the PLO, I think the main error of the PLO, even if they opened discussion with uh, Sartawi, with uh, some Zionists, etc was not to understand that the solution was not in Washington. It
1: was in Israel.
0: Arafat thought that, like many Arabs, they think that the American decide everything.
1: What was Sadat's remark that... America holds 97% of the cards?
0: Yeah, yeah, which was stupid. I I really think that the only moment where there was an opening was at the moment where there was a real division inside the Israeli society. I really believe this, that we will not change the situation if something doesn't happen in the Israeli society. It's much more difficult today than it was 20 years ago, but I'm convinced for... Political reason, but also, I say, for moral reason.
1: For moral reason.
0: Even if they are, I mean, the the son and daughter of people, of colonizer. I mean, most of the people have been brought up in Israel. What to do with them? Alain,
1: and- I think this is a viewpoint that you share, uh, broadly speaking, with some of the writers in France I've admired most over the years. Um, I'm thinking particularly of French-Jewish writers uh, like uh, Maxime Rodincent and uh Uh, Pierre Vidal who whose parents were uh, killed in the camps, a campaigner uh, against torture in Algeria and later a very eloquent opponent of Israeli expansionism. These men were very outspoken in their criticisms of Israel, dedicated to a just coexistence between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. The Trotskyist Daniel Ben Said uh, was another important figure. And I confess that I was, in my youth, rather envious of the French scene and of the French-Jewish intellectual scene. Uh, We had Noam Chomsky, we had Eye of Stone, but France seemed to have a much more expansive uh, intellectual community of dissidents when it came to Israel. But since then, it seems to me things have really changed and even shifted. After the Second Intifada broke out in France, the space for conversation about Israel-Palestine has shrunk considerably, in, in France, even as it has in recent years expanded uh, in America, the French Jewish scene has been increasingly dominated by conservative and far right currents of thought. People like Alain Finkielkraut and Eric Zemmour. Mm. What, what do you think has happened in France?
0: What happened is not only on the Jewish scene, uh, among Jewish intellectuals. It happened not just after the Second Intifada. During the Second Intifada, there was a very important solidarity movement with the Palestinians, even people condemning the the attack of Hamas against civilians, etc. But it began to change little by little, and my interpretation, and again, it's not only among the Jews, it's among the French population, is that the paradigm of understanding the Palestinian conflict has changed after the in the 70s and especially in the 80s after Beirut siege in 82 and the first Intifada. People understood that it was a, a struggle of people under occupation. It was very clear.
1: Right. So in the 70s, it was seen through the prism of anti-imperialism. Uh, in the 80s, through uh, the prism of human rights, and to deign more and more through religion,
0: no? No, no. It was not only human rights in the eighty. It was the, the fact that a, a people under occupation, and they have a right to a state. And this was the position of the French government, etc. Little by little, it has changed through the paradigm of the struggle against terror. And the fact that we are not seeing any more... Israel-Palestine as a conflict between occupied and occupier, but through the glass of war on terror. And in the war of ter- against terror, our ally is Israel and our enemy is Hamas. And the way, for example, I have been, I have been watching the information today about what's happening in...
1: In Sheikh Jarrah and the Al-Aqsa Mosque.
0: It's clear that all the people from Israel are using Hamas I mean, they are using Hamas to say it's terror organization. We are fighting against terror. And this is, unfortunately, it's not a change only on the Palestinian uh, field. I mean, it's a general change which creates a general climax in France, very, very negative on many questions, not only on the Palestinian question.
1: This whole tendency to see the Israeli-Palestinian question through the prism of the struggle against terrorism or radical Islam uh, has been exacerbated by developments in France itself around the rise of jihadism, uh, attacks on Jews, the the Charlie Hebdo affair and, and there's been this increasing amalgamation of the violence in Israel Palestine and the violence inside France.
0: Yes, of course. I mean uh, the fact that now the question of Islam is a central question in uh, in France has its impact on uh, on the political scene in general, but on the Israeli-Palestinian scene also. It's, it's very strange that we will have a presidential election in one year, and the presidential election in France is the most important one, and it's very clear that all the debate will be about security, terrorism, uh, Islam. Muslims represent in France 6 or 7% of the population. And most of the, these people are, quote, between quote, normal people who want to live normally. Some have <laughs> problems because, a part like general immigrants, you have a poor part of the population which are in suburbs, which are in very difficult conditions. And in these suburbs, I mean, some Salafist groups play an important role. But they play an important role because you have unemployment and because the state is retreating. And when I say the state is retreating, it's not. It is retreating because there is no police in these uh, places, but because there is no work, the shops are closing, the postal service are closing, etc., etc. So we are denouncing separatism. Now it's uh, the separatism. Uh, the
1: so-called Islamic separatism that Macron has denounced.
0: When I hear people saying there is a plot or there is a grand project. By the Muslim, When I have been working with many uh, Muslim associations, really, they are not able to make a very big plot to control France. I mean, it's so stupid. I mean, they are divided, which is normal. I mean, I mean, the French Muslims, they are Algerian, Tunisian uh, people from uh, Africa, from Asia, from, to think that there is a project to control France is, is so stupid. So they have now this idea of grand remplacement, the great replacement. Which
1: You're talking about the idea that the far right-wing author Renaud Camus yeah. has promoted, uh, the idea that the, so, that the former colonized are coming to replace whites. In France and in, in Europe, and yes. to impose and their culture.
0: You said it was extreme, right? But now it's central. I mean, uh, no, it's
1: been mainstream.
0: Yeah, yeah. One journalist said that uh, Macron himself is using not publicly, but the idea of that there is a grand remplacement. Yeah. So,
1: well, Alain, what's you know? I've been traveling to France since I was very young, and I and have strong ties to the country. You and I have met there on a number of occasions, and and what strikes me today is that so much of the conversation about France within the French establishment is civilizational in character. There's this notion that France is under threat from some terrifying force from outside, whether it's Muslims or an invasion of American ideas, critical race theory, intersectionality, whether it's the Islamic state, Uh, there's always something outside that, that... is threatening what is pure in France and threatening to destroy French civilization. It doesn't suggest that France is feeling particularly confident as a nation.
0: No, you are right. I think it's uh, the sign of a profound crisis in the French society, which is multidimensional. The fact that the left has disappeared as a project, we have some left political party, but which are, which are not very influential. Today, the polls show that the left parties together will not get more than 25% of the vote, which means that you have a victory of the right wing for many reasons. I think one of the main responsibility is on the Socialist Party, which has for 20 years, like the other Socialist Party, implement a neoliberal policy which make people desperate. I mean they cannot trust of course the right wing, they cannot trust the Socialist Party. And the presidency of Francois Hollande who was president for the just before uh, Macron for five years was a catastrophe on this uh, on this side. And also the fact that the question now of Islam especially and identity has really divided I think there is something special to France about what we call laïcité. For a long time, laïcité, which means separation of the churches, different churches and the state, which is a law in 1905, was the general rule, there was no no problem. But it was also the flag of the left. The right wing was against laïcité because they were supporting the Catholic Church.
1: And laïcité, in its original iteration, meant the neutrality of the French state towards religious institutions.
0: Yeah. But, you know, I remember, I think it was a a, a socialist congress in the 2000s, and Laurent Fabius making a speech. He was a number two of the socialist party. It was very strange because we were in a very difficult economy. And he made all his speech about laïcité. And I understood that this party, who is not able anymore to have a social program, who is not able to confront even capitalism, unemployment, etc. It's a good flag because also for a part of its constituency, etc., it's very important. And so it has been used, used, and now you have all the right wing, including Marine Le Pen, who was against laïcité. Now it is their main saying we are defending laïcité. But in fact, laïcité which has nothing to do with the law of 1905. I mean, they are really changing the law. Not everyone
1: really knows what laïcité means, what secularism means in the French context. Can you explain what laïcité is for the French?
0: To understand it, we must go back to history. At the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th, the Catholic Church was a very important institution which was hostile to democracy, hostile to the Republic, and which has many rights. And the idea of laïcité was to separate the Catholic Church and the other churches, I mean Jews, uh, Protestants, etc., from the state. But it was done in a liberal way, meaning each one has its own activities and we must not interfere with the activity of others. But we must understand that it is also linked to the memory of this fight, it's very strong memory. For, for a very long time, the political history of France has been organized around this question for or against laïcité. I mean, the right was against and the left was for. So it was a part of the identity of the French left. But also in the 60s, I mean, it was out of the debate. The only question on which there was debate was the schools. In 1905, some people have the idea of creating a national school system. And finally, we didn't do that. There is a private sector and public sector. At one moment, it was ideological. Now it's social. I mean, when you, you have money, you send your, your children to Catholic or uh, Jewish school because they are better and they are more founded, etc., etc. So this was the only question of laicity in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when... The left came to power and tried to create again, to nationalize the school system. There were the biggest demonstration in France for and against. But otherwise, there was no discussion about laicite. It was not a question. It became a question when the Muslim question was on the table.
1: Well, they're changing the meaning of laicite. Yeah, of course. You wrote a very powerful piece recently where you argued that uh, laïcité had historically been a battle waged on two fronts. There was the battle waged against the Catholic Church, which was a powerful, arrogant, uh, and anti-Republican force that had no intention of giving up any of its prerogatives. But then there was a conflict within the Republican camp itself, because there were those who saw secularism as a weapon with which to destroy not clericalism, but religion. And you quote in that article Uh, A letter that Jules Ferry wrote to teachers in 1882, that if a state school teacher should forget himself enough to impose hostile teachings in a school offending anybody's religious beliefs, he should be punished as severely and swiftly as though he had committed the other misdeeds of beating his pupils and giving himself over to culpable abuse against them. Now, that's quite different from how secularism or laïcité is understood today.
0: And also, it's very important, when we come back to history, the main architect of the law of 1905 were the Socialist Party, Jean Jaurès and Aristide Briand. And the radical, who was bourgeois party, were against, they were much more radical in some way against. And Jaurès explained why. And he said, why we must solve the religious question? Because we must now tackle the social question. And every time the left, I mean, the Republicans, I mean...
1: The defenders of the Republic, right. Yes.
0: Are getting together about this social law, the radicals say, no, we must fight before the the Catholic Church. And Jaurès has a very nice formula. I'm not sure I will be able to translate. We must appease the religious question so we can put on the table the social question. I think it's exactly the same today. I mean, one of the reasons we are, I mean, all these forces wanted to speak about Islam because they don't want to speak about the social question. You know, the Senate in, in France, we have the parliament and we have the Senate, which is in general much more conservative. Ten years ago, for a short period, there was a left majority. You know, what was the first law that they tried to impose was to impose the ban of scarf for the women who are taking care of children in their own house. I mean, we have this, I mean, you put your son or your daughter and there is Nunu, what we call the Nunu. So the first thing they think about it is a law against the Nunu. Really, sometimes you, I mean, you don't know if you must laugh or cry, but it's really symptomatic of something, which is the fact that the left is not able anymore to have a social uh, program.
1: Now, a good portion of the French left has been converted to this definition of laïcité, and especially to the stigmatization of Islam, to the point of approving things like a ban on headscarves in schools and public spaces, uh, Allah, you've been very much uh, opposed to this current. Um, it's been it's it's taken up a good part of your your writing, um, and because of the crisis in France, you've been promoting a more complex, more nuanced, uh, more progressive understanding of Islam of the people who practice it, or or, or those who come from families that are are Muslim, but who who don't themselves practice. These are not classically left-wing issues. We're, We're not talking here about the worker struggle or even the national struggle that consumed your father in Egypt. We're talking about how to create the conditions of coexistence, harmony, and equality in a modern democratic republic. I imagine it's not exactly where you imagined focusing your energies when you were a teenage communist in Egypt.
0: Yes and no. As I said from the beginning, I am an atheist and I have no relation with religion, but I am not hostile to religion. But I learned also from from Henry also, and from my political activities that sometimes you make alliance with people who are priests for helping the National Liberation Front for the liberation of Vietnam, and uh, for many important things. And I prefer this guy to atheist. I mean, really, it's not a problem if you believe in God or no. And I will not try to convince anybody to believe or not to believe. But I'm very interested in what people are doing. So it's not the fact that they are or they are not Muslim, Catholic, or uh, Jew. It's what are you doing for... uh, Liberation for Palestine, for equality, etc., etc. This was also, as you know, a part of the experience of Henry. Henry for the all his struggle for the liberation movement. Big part of the people who helped him concretely were priests.
1: Do you think that the hysterical reaction of the Macron government, in fact, of much of the French establishment, to the teaching of critical race theory or intersectionality? to what macron has described as Islamo leftism in universities do you think that hysterical reaction uh, has anything to do with the unmastered past uh, of the Algerian war do you think this hysteria around identity and difference is partly a carryover from that period
0: yes and from the colonial period even if things have changed I mean uh, macron has recognized the crime of colonialism etc but it has not penetrated the French society, and we are ready to to say, okay, it was 50 years ago, 200 years ago, etc. But now it's finished. I mean, a part of the population, and the intellectual, and the politician are not able to understand what are the, the consequences of what we call the post-colonial uh, question. That it's not finished. It's living in our in our everyday life, I mean, uh, in the name of the street, the way we treat uh, black people, the way we treat uh, Maghreb or foreigners, etc., etc. So I think we haven't, you know, there have been many things about the question of reconciliation between French and Algeria. And there was this report about... uh,
1: The Stora report you're referring to.
0: But I think it's an error. I mean, the question of, what happened in the Algerian war is a French question. We don't have to discuss it with the Algerian. We must recognize it not to please the Algerian, but for our own sake. And this, we don't understand, that we must finish with this history to change our our own society.
1: The people who were in groups like Témoignage Chrétiens and the Progressive Catholics uh, were often precocious in their support of national liberation struggles. Are there developments in France today that give you hope? Do you do you see the emergence of new forces in intellectual life and activism? Uh, do you see any signs of a new conception of citizenship that opposes this very uniform and homogeneous and repressive cult around laïcité and republicanism in France today?
0: Look, fundamentally, I am an optimist. Sometimes it's not linked with the concrete situation, but... In general, I'm not discouraged. I think we are trying to do our best, and it doesn't prevent me to work, to be engaged, to want to change things. And I am—I have some confidence in the young generation. I mean, I'm not speaking of all the fight against climate change, etc., otherwise kind of mobilization. But even on this question of laïcité, there was recently a a poll made among young people in the schools, people between 13 and 18 years old. And it was really a shock to many people because the majority of these young people say, we don't want blasphemy. We don't want people to insult religion. We accept it. We don't have problem with scarf. And I think the fact that a part of this young generation, the Muslim people are, a more important portion of this part of the population because there are many young Muslims. I think it gave me some, uh, some optimism about the future.
1: Before we close, Alain, I wanted to ask you about uh, where things stand with respect to your father's case.
0: It's, it's difficult. One of the positive things is 40 years after his assassination, we have been able to maintain the judicial file open. I mean, it's not closed. And so we are trying uh, with uh, lawyers, etc., to continue. When he was killed, Solidarity, which was his movement of support, uh, the National Liberation Movement, was not in a crisis, but they didn't have any mu- much more activity because liberation was finished. The only point where they were very active and I think with a real impact was South Africa. So, This can be one of, especially when you know that at this time, I mean, Giscard d'Estaing and the French government has a very, very strong relation with South Africa. And there was this idea that South Africa was a central point of the fight against communism. At this time, I think there was really a relation between uh, secrets, French Secret Service.
1: And the South Africans.
0: The South African. There is also another um, dimension, which was the question of Algeria. At this time, the relation between France and Algeria, which is Cardestan, were very bad. And there were many assassinations of Algerians in France. So you are not obliged to have only one group, but... The question is not, more or less, we know who pulled the trigger, who who shot, I mean, the people who are mercenaries, and more or less, we know who they are. The problem, who decided at one moment, there must have been a, a decision. And I think my feeling is that Valéry Giscard was one of the deciders of the killing. And I hope now that he's dead, we will have some more information. It will be easier, perhaps, to know. But in France, you know, this is, uh, people have been struggling.
1: Takes a long time for things to become...
0: No, it's not only this. I mean, in France, you have something which I think is very exceptional to France if you compare it to the United States. The access to the archives are closed. About the Algeria war, I mean, 60 years after. And the law is not implemented. I mean, the law of opening the archive is not. So it can take uh, many times, even if I don't think we will find an archive saying just this time took the decision to uh, kill uh, Curiel. But perhaps it will give us some more elements.
1: Alain, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Alon Gresh on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Chance. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. Thank you to ECM Records and Anwar Brahem for lending music to this episode. The theme for Myself with Others is composed and performed by Richard Sears. Thank you for listening and please subscribe.